we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Welcome back to the studio, Courtney. Hello. I feel like we haven't been here for a while, but yeah. it's bringing me back memories. <laughs> yeah. the, the recording studio at UWA. <laughs> also known as the Meeting of Health Studio. That's right. Yeah. It's the only yeah. thing that it's used for. That's right. <laughs> it's set up just for us. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about who we're having a chat with in this episode. Yeah. So um, I, I feel like we've actually been chasing her for a while. We've um, we've had some correspondence for probably over over a year and then, you know, things get in the way and then, mm. you know, we all get really busy. Um, but today, luckily uh, enough, we have Professor Romola Bucks with us, who is part of the UWA Psychology School mm-hmm. um, and is the director of the RAIN study at the moment. So a very, very exciting guest. Yes, uh, with a back, yeah, a, a, quite an extensive background in neuropsychology and yes. and memory and and has a look at sleep and, and that, the impacts of sleep. Uh, in her research as well, mm-hmm. which is uh, really interesting. Yeah, I was, I was, yeah, pretty, pretty excited to get Romola on because, uh, um, and I mentioned this in the conversation, but um, because I did a psychology degree, I had her as my lecturer for a, a number of units, um, and she was one of my favourites. I learned quite a lot from her, um, and I knew, she, yeah, she's very, very good at presenting. Mm. Um, so I was really excited that we actually get to talk to her today. Yeah, no, and I think um, that excitement was justified. As yes. people will hear by the conversation that's <laughs> that's to come, um, but yeah, I guess we won't spoil it. Um, we'll let you guys have a listen to hear what Professor Romola Bucks has to say. Okay. Yeah. yeah, excellent. All right, well, let's get started. Okay. It's um, great to welcome. Uh, now you're a professor. Yes. Yeah, from the box to the <laughs> podcast. And what's your what's your title at the moment? What, what position are you in? Uh, I have I have I suppose two. I mean, as you say, professor, and then um, I'm the director of the Rain Study. Yeah. And I am Pro Vice Chancellor Health and Medical Research at okay. UWA. Now, is that is that a role that you were previously acting in, and now you're permanently in? Uh, uh, sort of. Okay. Um, I was uh, asked to do the role for six months, extended to twelve months, okay. whilst um, the university was sorting out who was going to be the SDVC, yep. the Senior Deputy Vice Chancellor, and the Deputy Vice Chancellor Research. Yep. Very happy to say that Tim Colmer is Senior Deputy Vice Chancellor, and Anna Noack is. Deputy Vice Chancellor Research. Yep. So I'm hoping to continue in the role next year. Okay, mm-hmm. that's excellent. So we, you were sort of acting for Anna while she was acting. Effectively, yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. Okay. I tried to fill Anna's very, very large <laughs> shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen Anna um, present before. She's excellent. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a good um, result for the university. I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> excellent. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, do you, do you want to give us a bit of background about yourself, like your kind of, I guess, your clinical background, your research background, and then we can sort of go from there. Sure, I'd be happy. To. So I trained in the UK, if you can't tell from my accent, <laughs> um, in clinical psychology and then uh, specialised in clinical neuropsychology. I worked for some years in the National Health Service in the diagnosis and management of dementia and I managed a memory clinic, which is a specialist tertiary centre for, for diagnosing and managing more complex dementia cases. Whilst I was there, my then boss said to me, you know you should do a PhD. <laughs> and I kind of went, Oh, That's right. how it always starts. Yeah. All right, then. <laughs> yeah. Little did I realise. Mm. Took me five, was it five or six years? I don't know. One mm-hmm. of them, at least one of them was suspended by the graduate research school because I was going too slowly. Mm-hmm. In my defence, I was holding down a full-time job at the same time, yep. running the research centre and memory clinic. Um, yep. And that was in sort of cognitive psychology. I was really interested in memory errors and Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. So... After that was over, I decided to get more involved in the training of um, clinical psychology practitioners. So I became a postgraduate trainer at the University of Southampton. And then for a series of very kind of uninteresting reasons, decided I was going to come to Australia Mm -hmm. and got a job at UWA um, initially as a lecturer. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of worked my way up since. I thought I'd be here for five years, and 15 years later, I am still here. <laughs> um, no, no plans to go back at this stage? 
Do you know what? Now I've become a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I became a citizen actually because it's easier to go away and come back if you're a citizen than yeah. if you're a resident. Mm-hmm. And I've parents. I had parents in the UK who are older and might need my care. So. Um, yeah. And you do that flexibility. But we're very settled here. Okay. Um, and so I've kind of shifted out of um, clinical practice uh, into more into training, clinical psychologist supervision and so on and research, and latterly more into sort of management leadership positions. Mm-hmm. But my research passion became sleep as a risk factor for cognitive decline and dementia. Mm-hmm. And so the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, that's what I've been focusing on in the rare gaps in my diary <laughs> when I can do something that's not administrivia. Yeah. So you moved over here, it would it be late 2000s? 2007. Okay, 2007. Middle of All 2007. Right. I, I had you as my lecturer in 2011 and 12, so, so I remember your lectures. <laughs> so, so one of the very kind of early jobs I was given was to be the coordinator of Psych 1101, yep. which is the first year, first semester unit. I had never been an undergraduate teacher. I'd only been an educator yep. in postgraduate programs. And I, looking back on it now, I think it was a very brave head of school <laughs> to give me um, the, it, the charge of a, of, of a shop window unit. And a very large one. Very, well, it had very 670 large. students when I took yeah. it over. And four years later, when I gave it up, it had over 1,000. Yeah. And then it, at it peak, its peak, Huge. it went up to 1,500. One of the largest units in the university. Mm-hmm. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Standing in the Octagon Lecture Theatre with all these young 17-year-old faces staring at you. (laughs) I'm thinking, what are the AVs going to break down now? Yeah, Yeah. That takes me back to the late 90s because I originally enrolled in a Bachelor of Science um, with the intention to major in psychology. And I was was actually – I'd just turned 17, actually. Mm. Um, and I had a guy called Mike Anderson yes. lecturing. I'm not sure if he's still around. He 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 went to Murdoch and then um, he's he went overseas and he's retired. But yes, yeah. fantastic <laughs> Scottish accent. Yeah, great sense of humour. Flaming red hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, Mike is a legend. Yeah. So yeah, um, that was my yes. introduction. I never finished yeah. that degree, but <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> went travelling ah, yes. and then came. well, not many people do finish a, a psychology degree. I don't yeah. think but a lot of people um, enrolled in this the two initial psych units, you know, there's 1,500. By the end with honours, there's only 60 to 80 maximum. Yeah. 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 So three, about 300 graduate from the undergraduate degree. Yeah. But yes, okay. it's a it's a psychology um, first year units, even some of the second year units are taken in a lot of other degree mm. programs because they're great mm. core foundation units. Mm. They teach you about thinking and memory and learning and how do you see the world mm-hmm. and... You know, biases mm. and that stuff. It. Yes, and yes, and and social aspects of psychological science, as you yeah. say, bias, mm. etc. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, a lot of the units were interesting. I just kept failing the maths unit, the stats yeah. unit. So that's <laughs> one of the reasons I didn't progress. Ah, uh, yes. And then uh, you ended up what, doing what you're doing. I do do bias stats now. Yeah. It's for my job. So it's yeah. fantastic. And you yeah. had to do masters bias stats as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, bias stats one and two. Yeah. Yep. So you just didn't yeah. like the psychological version of stats. Yeah. So you I like think it stats. SPSS. It's I, SPSS, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> Terrible. I, I think my 17 and 18-year-old brain just wasn't ready for it. And uh, if I did it now, I'd probably really enjoy it. But yeah. yeah, just back then, it was more interesting <laughs> to do other things. So, And the great yeah. thing is, you, I mean, that's the great thing about the, the, the degree structure we have is that you can dip your toes into a number of waters mm. in the first year, even into the early parts of the second year, and then decide what you want to do. Yeah. I must admit, when I first arrived from the UK, where people enrolled in a degree from the get-go, and that was the lane they were in, I was horrified. <laughs> when I saw the sort of pick and mix approach <laughs> that we take um, in many Australian universities and particularly yeah. in UWA and now I'm a complete convert mm. because I think when you're 17 you just don't really know you think yeah. you're going to like something that's right the great thing is you can have a go and go I don't like that flavour I'm going to try something else and, yeah. and you can still graduate with a great degree so yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan yeah, yeah. no I, I think it's, it's yeah a great thing. I, I ended up in law before I ended up in public health. So. You've done so many different things, though, Craig. <laughs> but I, yeah. bet you, I bet you you use all of the things that you've learned Yeah, and you draw them together. They make you uniquely Absolutely. you with your they skill do. set. Yeah. That's why you can run one of these things as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
yeah, the had a, a short career in the music industry as well. So it's <laughs> great. Yeah, so interesting. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of interested to hear a bit more about your the practice side of things that mm. you've done before we get into the research because it sounds really interesting. So that obviously the practice and then training practitioners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my um, clinical practice was was more about um, sort of early diagnosis um, and the ways in which being able to diagnose someone can help planning. So, for example, if you see someone who thinks they might have memory problems, but it turns out that they have an untreated depression, you can help remediate that. If you see someone who it turns out is in the early stages of a of a degenerative disease like Alzheimer's disease, it allows them to make plans, living wills, do the things that they mm-hmm. wanted to do, maybe get involved in a clinical trial, maybe try some treatment. So I was involved at that end um, in my practice largely because there are barn door kind of, when I say barn door, there are um, cases where it's very clear what the diagnosis is. And then there are more complex cases where you get lots of overlapping factors, comorbidities, um, strange patterns of change, sudden onset, those kinds of things where specialist tertiary services are needed, a multidisciplinary clinic, which was the kind of clinic that, that, that I worked in, to work out to unpick what's going on. And so we worked more at that level and then we would pass on the care of the of the patient to back to the general practitioner or hospital services or whatever with us having unpicked um, what was going on. Sometimes we'd follow them up and we sometimes had to follow them up for six months, you know, a year, a little longer because sometimes only time untangles the threads of what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, you think, well, it could be this or this, I'll treat this, come back in six months. If it's not remitted, that was contributing, but it probably wasn't the whole story. Or well, now we can we can pare down what it is that we think is going on. Mm. Um, but we were very much a, a diagnostic service. And I really enjoyed that because it's very cutting edge, it's challenging, it's it's a bit like um, sort of the whodunit of, mm. <laughs> of the clinical world, if you like. Mm. Um, but we were also a research centre as well. And um, that was kind of what led me into my uh, research career was seeing strange symptoms, mental health, um, memory symptoms, not mental health symptoms, I'm sorry, memory symptoms. People were doing odd things with their memory when I was testing them that I couldn't understand and I couldn't find the answers to in the literature and I decided that I wanted to go and explore it. So Mm -hmm. my interest in research came out of my clinical work Mm. and there's, there's always that connectivity for me. It's, no, it's the so what question. Why am I asking this research question Right. There's a, a clinician still buried, wailing in the back of my head going, <laughs> but what use is that? Mm. And it might be that I won't know him for 20 years, and I'm okay with that if I can see that it might be useful, mm. it might be clinically relevant. Were there were there any particular patients that you had that kind of stuck in your brain for, like, research questions or ones that had, like, you never managed to find an answer for or something like that? There were a few, uh, but they stuck in my brain for for more sort of sad reasons, really. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a a woman I met who was young. When I say young, she was my age now, and that's young. (laughs) It may not be to you, but it is to me. (laughs) And um, she had what's called normal pressure hydrocephalus, so her um, cerebral spinal fluid was, was, she was overproducing it, and that was building up pressure in her brain and sort of basically pumping her brain up and mm. obviously the skull doesn't get any bigger so you're just smooshing the brain against the, the walls of the skull yeah um, and uh, that produces um, walking problems um, incontinence problems cognitive slowing and a whole host of things but there were also other symptoms that didn't quite fit with that so we persuaded the neurosurgeons to shunt so they put a shunt in to bleed off the excess cerebral spine of cerebrospinal fluid I can't say the word (laughs) and um, whilst they were doing the shunt they actually took a biopsy and you don't normally biopsy a living person but on the grounds they were already opening up the the brain you know might as well they they might as well (laughs) and they sent the biopsy um, for um, investigation and it came back and she had very marked signs of Alzheimer's disease Mm. so um, uh, neurofibrillary tangles um, amyloid plaques so she not only had 
normal pressure having hydrocephalus, but she also had Alzheimer's disease. Um, and I know there were some people who said, well, what was the point of doing the shunt? Well, the, the great point about doing the shunt was that she recovered a lot of her mobility and speech and so on, and slowness. And so she got much better quality of life. Yep. We were able to tra- start treatment earlier. And so, yes, eventually the Alzheimer's disease would have had its impact, but not until not until some more time had passed, which was better quality of life. And she could make plans and she knew what was happening. And she was able to engage in in making decisions about her own care and and discuss her plans with her family. And those things, I think, the dignity that that confers is very powerful and very, very important. So even though I know many people kind of go, well, dementia, it's 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 very depressing because there's nothing you can do. I would have always said that's not true, actually. Knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is control. And we often take control away from people with dementia far more than we should. Um, and so I think it's really important to to be able to give that control back. Mm. So that's a good example. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to ask you something that I've been wondering as well. When you put the word neuro in front of psychology, <laughs> I'm wondering what the difference difference is between that and neuropsychiatry, which you see a lot as well. Like, do they overlap quite a lot? <laughs> do you get that question a lot? <laughs> um, neuropsychiatrists can charge more. Okay. Very good, yeah. Um, oh, my God. Um, <laughs> there is enough, a lot of overlap. Neuropsychology has a longer history than neuropsychiatry. There, that, that neuropsychiatrists often do a lot of the same thing. A lot of what neuropsychiatrists do is rebadge neuropsychology, and God help me if a neuropsychiatrist hears <laughs> me say that. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I, I specialised in the um, cognitive assessment of individuals with neurodegenerative or, or traumatic brain disease. Mm-hmm. Um I am not a medic. I can't prescribe. I can't do surgery. Um, I can I can intervene using behavioural interventions, using counselling, psychotherapy type approaches. I I don't because I'm no longer fit to practice because <laughs> I'm not current. But that's what I used to do. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, my job was to um, be able to describe in great detail and interpret the pattern of what I was seeing of the. The memory, the language, the visuospatial, the the problem solving, the, the the control, mental control, the cognitive slowing type performance I was seeing, and articulate what kind of a pattern that was consistent with, and to help with differential diagnosis and identifying what kinds of rehabilitation strategies or treatment approaches would be useful. Um, there is some, there are some neuropsychiatrists who do in depth neuropsychological assessment, but <laughs> yeah, I just think there's a there are yeah, like Venn diagrams. There's mm-hmm. an overlapping sector, and then there's some differences. Yeah. I would never prescribe a drug, for example, because I'm not qualified to. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. that's the main difference. A lot yeah. of people know is psychiatry. Yeah, is psych- drug central psychiatry versus psychology. Yeah, yeah. generally, it's yeah. just the neuro part that kind of. <laughs> brings everything kind of quite close together, I think. Yes, it does. But, you know, um, behavioural economics is just psychology rebranded as well. (laughs) Psychology (laughs) as a discipline has been stolen by lots of people. And it's it's because it's very transportable. Yeah. But it is quite funny to us as psychologists who who would argue that a lot of of disciplines, newer disciplines, have been borrowed initially from the base of psychology and then developed because... And you know what? Great, mm. actually. It's it's fine when it's when it adds something, but I I've got a degree in criminology, which I think is like a pseudoscience, <laughs> which is a sub branch of psychology, it is, yeah. but it's so blanket and restricted in its assumptions and everything that it's kind of practically useless in in my experience. Okay, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, because <laughs> like, I've wor- worked quite a lot with people in the prison system, and the the sort of view that criminologists take doesn't it's getting better, but traditionally it's all about crime and behavioural sort of issues leading to crime and that sort of thing, mm. criminogenic needs, and it doesn't take into account all of the other... Like the social, social determinants. determinants. And, and yeah. Absolutely, and, and I think I think that's the thing about psychology training is, is, you know, a good one does make you think about the fact that, you know, I am a product of my environment, of my opportunities, of my immediate social network, but of the broader society that I fit in whether I've experienced microaggressions, you know, um, racism, whether I have 
had a traumatic childhood, whether I've been separated unwillingly mm. from parents. I mean, there's you know, attachment problems. There's so much that mm. affects how we interact with the world and the choices we make, whether I've got fetal alcohol syndrome disorder, for yeah. example. Yeah, look, and obviously... I know what you mean, yeah. Um, and, that, and that's a huge issue, in, particularly in the juvenile justice that's system. Right, absolutely. So why then for you personally, because psychology is such a broad field, why did you end up focusing on memory? Because well, my own memory is so shit. Nice. <laughs> Thought you get some tips and tricks to make it better. <laughs> no, I think, no, I mean, in all seriousness, I, do you know what? I don't really know. Um, I thought when I first uh, decided that I wanted to be a psychologist, and I was quite young, I think I was about 14 or 15, that I wanted to work with children. Mm. And then when I actually started training, I did a placement with kids and I enjoyed it, but I thought, you know what? I'm not sure this is for me. And then I got to do a placement, um, an older adult placement, and not everybody got to do one. It's now compulsory in the UK to do an older adult placement. It's not compulsory here. And I absolutely loved it. Mm. I kind of fell in love with my client group, (laughs) not in an appropriate way. But I was fascinated by, you know, these are people with rich life history that lived a different life than me in a very vulnerable point in their lives. Just such depth to Mm. someone who's 70 or 80 or 90 and I just really enjoyed working with older people and I became passionate about the kind of ageism that I saw and that I thought it was unnecessary and that we that we have a tendency as a society to write off our elders in western society I need to be very clear Mm. to write off our our elders as somehow on the scrap heap when actually they're full they're full up with with experience and knowledge and often great humility and love and passion and and they've got so much to contribute to the world and and I just kind of I, I sort of found my spiritual home and I can't explain it better than that. <laughs> mm. I don't know why do I like chocolate but mm. I don't like blancmange because it wobbles. I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's no, yeah, it's interesting that. I mean we had Darcy Holman on the podcast recently who's he's an emeritus professor now and I think that he's his brain has still got like years of great work to do and he's such an inquisitive and thoughtful. Are you calling guy. Darcy old? No, because he, he actually retired quite young. He did, yeah. But I, I think that he could still do some really important work. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, he, and he's, you know, intellectually very curious mm, and, yeah. you know, lots mm. of skills and experience like you were talking about across different mm. sectors. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important to, to understand <laughs> that a bit bit more. <laughs> you, do you know Darcy? Um, uh, of him. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, he's sort of a... Um, uh, sort of omnipresent sort of mm-hmm. um, public health person. Particularly in our, in our area. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So All I right. guess we should probably move on to talking a little bit about the, the training that you do with practitioners and then we can maybe discuss some of your research. I mean, it, it comes with a caveat that it's been a long while since I've taken um, front and centre responsibility for training, but um, the way that I've been involved is... Um, through providing placement opportunities. So postgraduate training of of psychologists um, involves obviously lectures and then a bit like doctors and nurses, their placements. And you need to do quite a lot of hours of placements um, for a master's level qualification, uh, for an endorsed qualification, say in clinical psychology or clinical neuropsychology. You need to do um, a thousand hours of, of... placement activity of which a very significant proportion needs to be face to face can now be at least on online mm-hmm. because of covid with clients mm-hmm. um single or, or in groups um and i've been involved over many years in the training of clinical neuropsychologists largely so that's involved me training them in cognitive assessment in how to do neuropsychological assessments to do do those assessments in a way that's consistent, that's valid, reliable, and so on. And then how to um, score and interpret the pattern of results that you see 
and um, and write uh, reports and um, feedback letters to GPs and so on, feedback to the to the client themselves and their family, um, and to start thinking about developing rehabilitation approaches. I my involvement as training has become less and less and less over the years that I've been here mm -hmm. um, because I've become more and more involved in other aspects of university work. But mm. it's lovely to see students that you've that you've been involved with graduate, go out and start practicing and then themselves become supervisors and teachers mm -hmm. and trainers and so on. Mm. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, it must be quite gratifying. Yeah. So are there any that you still work with that, that sort of that you've been supervising in the past? Uh, a, a few and they come and go. Um, and most of the um, psychologists that I've um, helped to train in the last 15 years have been doing a combined master's PhD program, which is a very popular program at UWA, where they do a PhD alongside the two year master's Mm -hmm. in clinical psychology or clinical, or clinical neuropsychology practice. Mm. And um, so some of them end up doing research and clinical practice jobs when they graduate. Mm. Um, and I keep in touch with, with a lot of them, as many as I can. <laughs> um, I like to watch where their career goes mm. and uh, see what they get up to. Um, I was, um, when I finished my honours, and I was making that choice whether I did master's and PhD. Mine was the first year where they did combine it. So originally there was the original master's and then and then only the master's and PhD was an option. I'm like, I'm never doing a PhD. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said. Yeah. What changed your mind? Um, uh, to do a PhD. Yeah. It, very similar to yours in that um, someone was like, oh, you should do a PhD. And I'm like, oh, all right. Um, so I ended up doing master's in public health. And it was after my dissertation for that that I got offered a PhD. Um, but that was three years after I said no to yeah. master's and PhD you know, combined. Yeah. Yeah. I have observed, and this may not apply to you, but I've observed in a lot of young women in particular a tendency to say, oh, I couldn't do that. Mm. I've spent a lot of my career saying, yep. mm. um, <laughs> I said a rude word, um, rubbish. I'll turn that bit up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but there is an internalized kind of imposter syndrome that mm. I see is still prevalent in young women today, young women scientists that breaks my heart. And I've spent a lot of my life trying to kind of go, no, no, you can, you'd be great. I mean, only if I genuinely believe it, there's no point in suggesting that someone has a PhD is going to break them. Because mm. yeah. um, let's let's be frank, a PhD is a it bit of a baptism of fire. It can definitely break people. Yes. Mm. Um, but yes, to encourage young people, but in my experience, young women need more encouragement than young men mm -hmm. or have done. Mm. I think it's changing. But do, you, yeah. do you have any insight into what factors might be driving that, you know, any of the major ones? I can only go from what men. I... Men. Well, yeah. no, I mean, I, I, and women yeah. too. I mean, I think, I think we... I think we have quite a sexist society. I think WA is still more sexist than other places that I have lived and been to. I love this state. I love this country very, very much, but sometimes it does feel like I'm at a time warp. Mm -hmm. um, and I still think that we're either explicitly or implicitly sort of telling young women, you can't, you shouldn't, don't overreach yourself, mm -hmm. um, don't be too big for your boots, be quiet. Mm -hmm. Be, be be compliant. I think it's very indirect messaging it's that you, indirect. you can only see it if you know that you're looking for it. And like if you, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I I want I want I a bit more of I am woman. Hear me roar, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I love think that. It's, I mean, I I think I work in a school that probably goes against that trend. In yes. that, there's yes. a lot more female, um, you know, doctors and. Uh, researchers and whatnot in, yeah. in our school than there are male, but mm. I know generally, kind of in the hard sciences, it's a lot of and oh, and and we, you know, it's a case that we still have we've got increasing numbers of of women in science who are you know young women, but yeah. when you get up to mid career levels and senior career levels, um, the numbers diminish, yeah. and um, we still in some disciplines don't have nearly enough female professors and associate professors. Yeah. And that is changing, but, but we've got not only got to get more women into the disciplines, we've got to keep them in the disciplines. Yeah. I think 
one of the issues is there's a structural problem in that a lot of the experienced academics that make the funding decisions are men because they've been around and they've had those opportunities in the past Mm -hmm. and they're in those senior positions in these funding bodies like the NHMRC and the ARC, et cetera. And so, yeah, there is a bit of a glass ceiling kind of at Mm. play. Hopefully, as the generations kind of progress, that'll break down a bit. But yeah, I think it will take time. I think it's beginning to change. It's just not changing fast enough for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I know there are some men who are not happy, for example, with the latest changes that the NHMRC has brought in mm. around mm. splitting the investigator grants into males and females. And I think there are some men who are very unhappy about that and some women who are very unhappy about it. And I, it's going to be a really interesting and important experiment to see mm. what actually happens but I don't believe that people who've produced poor quality science will get funded. Mm-hmm. Um, I just simply don't believe that that is true. I think there's enough people out there producing good science that from both sexes that and, you're going to... And there's yeah. more good science that isn't being funded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and increasingly so as, as the amount of funding available reduces year on year on year. So, yeah, yeah it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's exciting that someone in a kind of senior position at the university has got, you know, that as a priority. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's great. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this episode. If you have a minute and enjoy the conversations we bring you, it'd be great if you could go to wherever you get your podcasts and give us a quick rating and review. Not only do we love to get your feedback, but it also helps other people to find us. Thank you. And now back to the show. I feel like um, we should probably talk about what you're currently doing in terms of your research. <laughs> so what's kind of your main project that you're working on at the moment? Uh, I really, um, it, it's more as the director of the RAIN study. Yeah. I do mm-hmm. a little bit of research now, um, still in sleep and and cognition and how sleep impacts cognition. Um but mostly my research is now done through my wonderful PhD students whom I get to supervise. And so really it's their projects and mm-hmm. I'm just kibitzing from the side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know that's okay. I think that gets to you get to a point in your career where you kind of decide where your priorities are. But um, my major kind of research responsibility is as the director of the RAIN study, mm-hmm. which I've been doing for nearly two years now. Mm. God, time flies. <laughs> um which is a bit of a passion project because it's an extraordinary, extraordinary yeah, thing. Very cool. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so obviously RAIN is part of our school. Yes. And so we have a little bit of exposure and someone spoke at the whole school meeting yesterday actually and talked about what RAIN uh, is up to a little bit, okay. which is good. Um, but yeah, for people listening that might not be familiar with it, just want to give a broad brushstroke sort of Happily. background. So the RAIN study is the world's Longest established, uh, longest established birth and pregnancy cohort in study in the world. So 1989 to 1991, approximately nearly 3,000 women who were 18 weeks pregnant were recruited to a study that was looking at whether or not um, multiple ultrasounds during pregnancy were safe. So half the women were randomised to having one ultrasound and half were randomised to having, I can't remember it was five or six now, ultrasounds during pregnancy. And happily, it turned out that there were no differences in outcomes, ultrasounds are safe, we're medically indicated. And, and the 1993 Lancet paper that was published um, uh, basically reporting that is incredibly highly cited and has influenced um, best practice um, in um, scanning in pregnancy since then. But the bit that was different was that instead of just leaving the study there, um, the researchers, um, Fiona Stanley, um, John Newnham, Lou Lando, Carl Michael, um, were able to secure additional funding, largely and initially from the Rain Medical Research Foundation, who have continued to fund us ever since, mm. um, to follow the children up after they were born and something like, is it 2,868? I think that's the right number, live births. And over the more than 30 years since, and then now in their early 30s, um, the RAIN study has conducted 18 follow-ups of the RAIN study index children. And we call them generation two because they're not children anymore. And I'm not allowed to call them rain droplets. (laughs) (laughs) Why not? That sounds great. Much better, isn't it? The droplets, rain droplets. Anyway, um, and so that's generation two. And and they've come back. um, 
18 times. Mm-hmm. So they were seen at 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11, 14, 17, 22, 27, 28, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but also over the years, we have collected some data about their parents, Generation 1. And we, in when the Generation 2 were 26, we brought Generation 1, their parents, in, 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 their, in their own right as participants. And next year, 2023, we're going to be running what we're calling the Generations follow-up because we're going to bring back Generation 1 and Generation 2 at the same time. Mm-hmm. We've never done that before. It's the biggest <laughs> follow-up that mm-hmm. we have ever done. It's absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, and so this has allowed um, the study of the developmental origins of health and disease, DOHAD. And the really impressive thing is the commitment of these participants to the study. I am in awe of them. They keep coming back. They come, they sit on our board, they sit on our advisory committees, they they um, uh, help us with our strategic planning. They will uh, um, talk to researchers about the researchers' um, grant ideas and help them shape the ideas. I mean, they are incredibly giving group. Some are more involved than others. Sometimes they don't come in for a follow-up, but they come back. We're trying to reconnect with some that we've lost to follow up um, mm-hmm. so that we can get as many of them back as possible. Um, but it is the most amazing study, and it's published something like 680 papers using their data. Um, it's a growing number. Um, we've supervised or contributed we haven't supervised but people have been supervised to about 180 PhDs Mm -hmm. about 65 PhD students using the data at the moment and the other thing that's so extraordinary about it is the RAIN study is is now um, supported by a partnership of all five universities of this state so we are, That's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do, <laughs> I know. And I didn't do it, yeah. I inherited it, but um, it's amazing. So we are um, st- we are steered by an unincorporated joint venture and the five universities plus Telecon, Telecon Kids Institute and the Women's and Infants Research Foundation are partners and they support us. They have members on our board um, and they direct, help direct us and, and advise us on strategic planning and so on. Um, and so it's a, it's extraordinary for lots of reasons. Extraordinary because that is a true statewide collaboration. It's extraordinary because no one else is ever going to be able to beat the RAIN study. We were the first. We are the longest. It's extraordinary because most cohort studies fail in the first five years. Um, and they fail because they run out of money or they fail because they run out of energy. And they fail mostly because they run out of participants because of attrition. The RAIN study, and another one that I think is also extraordinary is Bustleton, but the RAIN study is special because it's truly longitudinal and because of the commitment, the ongoing commitment of these participants and their families for so, so long. There's something in the water, I always say this, there's something in the water in WA, there's something different, maybe, Mm. I don't know, a a culture, an ethos, a... There's just something yeah. special. I think being isolated sort of creates a bit more of a sense of community. So almost like a really large country town. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Still. Yeah. And With equally bad driving. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you come from the UK, it'd be a bit of a culture shock. Maybe you need an indicator is. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, no, I'm seriously, I'm 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 so impressed and it's such a privilege to be the current mm. director of this amazing, amazing thing. It's an international treasure. Yeah. Mm. And so the the interest that the participants take in in staying connected and keep keeping on turning up, what's what sort of information is flowing through to them to sort of let them know what their contributions achieving, you know, in terms of results and some of the science that's coming out. So we give them feedback in a number of different ways. Um, if you are a participant and you come in and we collect data on you and we identify anything that we think is reportable to you, we will tell you about it so you can then decide how you're going to action it. Um, we write regular newsletters. Um, we have a whole enterprise going on right now where we've got um, uh, interns, communication interns working under our communications uh, director, um, uh, Kate McKenzie. 
Kate Richardson, sorry, I don't know where Kate Kate came from, (laughs) who are helping us to write plain language summaries around the science because scientists are terrible at writing (laughs) plain language summaries (laughs) so that we can put them on the website. So we have the website, we have um, a Facebook group just for the participants. We don't use it for public dissemination. We just use it to um, engage with with participants. Mm -hmm. Um, And we invite them to our symposium. So this year in September we had... The most amazing symposium, and I honestly cannot Im- remember an event that was more special in in the history of my career than this one. We had about 150 attendees; more than half of them were participants. They joined in. They um, gave presentations. Um, they asked questions from the floor. They even um, chaired and uh, answered questions in a panel where they talked about the experiences of being participants. Um, and they talked about the value that they had experienced and why they do what they do. And it was just, honestly, you couldn't bottle it. It was mm-hmm. extraordinary. So, um, so yeah. lots, lots of different approaches. Okay. That symposium, do, do researchers sort of travel from around the world to present at that, or how does it work? So um, we invited RAIN study researchers to come and present. Um, those people who weren't able to be there in person, they recorded talks, which we played. Mm-hmm. Um the whilst I'd love to have a hybrid event, we tried it the year before. It was a disaster, mm-hmm. um, and I'm not going to do that again until I could be certain that the technology won't yeah. fall later mm-hmm. and cause me enormous. I've attended a couple, and they're oh, not great. They're it awful. Was, it was yeah. Those online posters. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> so um, we didn't we didn't try a hybrid event. Um, we wanted it to be more intimate, more more. Um, immediate, more in person. We wanted that interaction over coffee. So there were participants and researchers talking at lunch and exchanging ideas. We even arranged a, a, um, a after the formal part of the symposium was over, we arranged a, um, a series of get-togethers for the special interest groups. So let's say you have an interest in, in cardiometabolic disease as a researcher. We said to the participants, are you interested in you know heart health? Come along and talk to a researcher and then we put them together and we facilitated those discussions after the formal part mm-hmm. of the event was over. And some of those went really, really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our participants, they're highly educated. They've, they're very professional participants. They've been in the system a long time. They mm-hmm. know what they've done. They want to know how the data are being used and they will ask very challenging questions and more power to them. <laughs> right. And if you can't answer the question, well, maybe you shouldn't be asking this to do the science. You know? Yeah. No, that's right. Does that mean that the the cohort of, of participants involved are also uh, not, I guess, not representative of the whole community because they have been a part of this study and then influenced and maybe know more about themselves and their health and so are more active? That is the million-dollar question. <laughs> I mean, whenever we look at our participants from the kind of standard demographics point of view, um, the RAIN study looks pretty much like the sample from which it's selected. The people who come to the symposium, the people who um, sit on our board, the people who choose to be part of our community advisory committee are self-selected and they are probably not representative of the general population. Um, Because as in any group that would volunteer like that, these are people who have um, both the motivation and the capacity to contribute in those ways. And we're really grateful for them. We do try and reach out as much as we can to the broadest array of, of participants as possible. Um, and for, But for some, you know, their contribution is they'll turn up, they'll do the assessment, and then they'll go away again. And you know, that's great, because mm-hmm. I need every one of them we can get. For others, they want to be more involved. So at a whole of sample level, we look like the population. Mm-hmm. And at the population level, there will be individuals who are more interested or more experienced or more skilled than Just others. at the symposium level, yeah. you've got the active, interested You've got ones. the active, interested yeah. people. Mm. I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> as long as at the whole at the whole sample level, we're, we're looking pretty good. Well, I think that's, that's kind of something where science is more going towards as well. We're having those, those consumers yes. involved in your research. Mm. It's just necessary to to drive questions so it just makes sense and a lot of what is considered best practice was developed with the rain study participants when the rain study was hosted by the telethon kids institute Mm -hmm. and ccci the community and um, community what is it called consumers and community 
um, involving consumers, that's right? It, that's yeah, the one yeah. that's based now, um, uh, hosted now by the uh, West Australian Health Translation Network. Mm-hmm. Grew out of Telton Kids Institute. That's right. And they, you know, and the Rain Study kind of grew up together. Yeah. So a lot of of what is considered best practice is actually formed mm-hmm. in working with the RAIN studies. It's actually had a very formative influence on, on yep. um, community engagement, best practice in the state, and guidance that yeah. people are now asked to follow. So <laughs> I love the, the fact that there's that history there as yeah, well. Yeah, it's great. Um, so that's Anne McKenzie's yes. group, which she was right. the pioneer anyway. That's right, yes. And, and I think they actually were based at, at Population Health for a, for a time, um, I think Darcy was maybe head of school when it kind yes, of started. Yeah, yes, that's right. So uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of local history for, for, <laughs> yeah. for that, but and and therefore local expertise. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And they've now got a massive database of consumers if, right. across different health areas, which that's is right. yeah really helpful for researchers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyone listening, please get in touch with them if you need <laughs> consumers. Absolutely, yeah. and um, most of the universities in the state uh, support um, CCI and. Uh, as part of that support, there are resources that staff members of the universities, including UWA, can access mm-hmm. for free, yeah. including community conversations. Mm-hmm. You do have to find some funds to cover the honoraria, but the actual um, uh, conversation planning and implementation, yeah. there are a number of those that are available I, I th- yeah, and I think on their website they've got some great examples of how those conversations have resulted in like real policy yeah. changes. And there's lots of resources that are how to. So even if you haven't got funds, you can kind of do it yourself if you follow the the templates. So yes, absolutely yeah. check out check out the CCI <laughs> website on the yeah. WHTN page. Yeah, excellent. That's a good a good plug. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we maybe should finish up because you've been at the university for a little while it, by picking your brain a little bit uh, like for young up and coming researchers to maybe get some advice on things to, to look out for and um, navigating the university system. And, you know, you've obviously seen <laughs> a few evolutions of how things are run at the university since 2007. And you've probably got experience from the UK as well. Um, but yeah, if I was a, a young academic, maybe just about to finish my PhD before <laughs> Is this too long. a loaded question for <laughs> us, Greg? <laughs> yeah, in, in the current environment. But is, there, is there anything you've seen that might be useful for um, young emerging researchers to kind of know I, I, I've got a few thoughts, but I'm going to start by saying I recognise that it's tougher now than it's ever been at any stage of my career, mm-hmm. and that the that it's a, it's more challenging for young researchers to to stay in academia and to, and to fund themselves in academia than it's ever been, and I'm not going to pretend that that's not the case because because that would just be improbable, right, mm-hmm. and inappropriate. That being said. Um, I think that sometimes what happens is it's easy for all of us to get kind of consumed by the day-to-day and not to look up and look out. So what we often see is there are, whilst there are fewer, but there are grant opportunities, there are grant monies, there are philanthropic funds, there are um, uh, foundations and so on that will fund and do have money to fund early career researchers but that sometimes I think people are not applying for those funds, perhaps because they miss the notice, because they didn't read the email that said this grant is coming, or they're not on the mailing list for what grants are coming out, or they're not getting the emails from, you know, the the um, the pre-award the research team at their university, um, and so they're then not um, putting in a grant practicing honing their grant writing skills. They're not, for example, necessarily planning in advance well enough to have time to have someone peer review the grant before it goes in. So um, I know in psychological science, for example, if you're an anti-career researcher or any researcher and you would like a colleague to look at your grant, there is a program that will that, that, that can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a group of staff who said, I'll read other people's grants if you'd like. These are highly successful staff members. But if you don't 
commit to writing the grant in time, to submit it to someone in time, to have feedback. We all do everything last minute. I, I'm the same. But if you're not taking advantage of the resources, if you're not taking advantage of the, of the support from the research office, what, whatever's available, what's online, if you're not um, looking for the small grant, the big grant. So here's the thing, right? Success breeds success. There, we've just had a whole load of research awards. Mm -hmm. I know because I basically led the development and reinitiation of those research awards, thankfully supported um, by the Vice Chancellor and the Deputy Vice Chancellor Research. Because I'm passionate about recognizing internally excellence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know so many people are. And I thought, well, you know, thought, well, okay, this is something you feel strongly about, you know, get sport, do it. So that's what we did. And my question is, if you didn't, if you were a young researcher and you didn't apply for the Early Career Researcher Award in your school, why not? Mm. Is that imposter syndrome? Did you think I won't win so there's no point? I don't think that's the right mm. no, did, approach to take. Did you apply, Craig? I didn't this year, no. No, neither did I. Yeah. So I wasn't yeah. asking you. I'm just, uh, this, I'm, I'm, yeah. having, I'm having a yeah. kind of a so, theoretical conversation. So, yeah. Yeah, my right. Now, I know, yeah. I know that writing an application for an award when you're really busy is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. If you've written a draft for something, even if you didn't win it, the next round time that an award comes up, you know, and there are lots of awards. I just I just received something for about awards from our Sevier that went to a whole lot of scientists. I mean, how many, was, there was nobody from UWA who got one, but is that because we didn't submit? I don't know. So there's the L'Oreal Awards for women. There's all sorts of awards, um, primaries awards and so on. If we don't submit for them, we don't practice the writing, we don't internalize the idea that we are worthy we don't get the practice, we don't get the feedback, we, we don't win. But once you win one, or once you've submitted one, you can then use that as a basis for the next. You get better at it each time. Once you won one, win one, you win another. So when you go to apply for a grant, the reviewers are going to look at what awards you've got when you're an early career researcher. The awards matter. It doesn't matter whether they come with any money or not. Having the thing that says you're an award winner or you got nominated matters. So I think the thing is to say... It doesn't matter how much you doubt yourself. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Chance your arm. Have a go. Try and plan it in advance. Try and get feedback from mentors, people you admire. But hone your skills at selling yourself and your science. Hone your skills at telling people why you do what you do and why it matters and why they should be interested. And you've got like two minutes to do that. Mm. In a grant, you can write the most amazing science, but if the first half page of the grant doesn't tell me what it is you're doing, um, how it's advancing the field, and why the hell I should care about it, I have stopped being interested. Yep. It's a skill. Mm. So I would say you start with the small things and you build that skill. Take mm. the opportunity to present to your peers. You know, it, it, It's that mentality of I'm not going to win it so there's no point. Mm -hmm. And I would say that will breed the result that you expect. Yeah, you won't change anything but by doing that. But it won't give you the one you want. Yeah. And the people who are succeeding are the people who are feeling the fear of doing it anyway, who are talking themselves out of that imposter syndrome we were talking about, mm -hmm. who are encouraging each other, who are saying, just go for it. Let's make a pact, you too, right? Yeah. That you will look for and apply for awards and you'll support each other to do it. Mm -hmm. We need to bring each other up as well as kind of have that self-talk with ourselves. So I think that for me is is something I've noticed as a sense of almost despair and despondency. And it will produce, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. You've got to practice. You've got to get good at it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, mm. it's just through other things I've done in life, you know, where you've tried and failed at something, you go back and revisit what you did and you work out how you can make it better. And But just having that starting point is important. It's sort of like there's this inertia at the beginning where you haven't got anything. If you can get to having something 
It's Damn. like in um in five years' time when both of us have graduated and we try and reread our PhD, <laughs> it's going to be truly horrible because uh, we've practiced and we've gotten yeah. far better. Yeah. Well, except that it won't actually. There will oh, bits dear. that you'll read, you'll read bits of it and you'll go, "Did I really write that? That's yeah. not bad." Yeah. And then you read other bits and go, oh, "I could have done that better." But yeah. it'll be mostly good. It'll be mostly good, mm. right? Because mm. you've spent so long at it. The thing is, though, the PhD is is great, but it's it's a journey person's degree. Right? Mm-hmm. You're not trying to do the best piece of work on the planet. Yeah. Mm. You're trying to show that at the end of it, you have become a competent scientist, historian, philosopher, educator, whatever 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 your field is, social scientist, yeah. etc. And on the way, you will have made mistakes. And what you're showing is not that you did the perfect piece of work, but that you learned. And mm. at the end of it, you know how to be a, a good researcher. Yeah. That's what matters. Mm. Um, and then you build on it. Mm. No, that's right. That's mm. it. Yeah. I mean, I had that exact experience with pub- getting my uh, law honours thesis published. I went back and revisited it and had a couple of different co-authors join, including my original supervisor. And I was like, I didn't. Like parts of it, I thought, oh, that's pretty profound. And then other parts, I was like, what the hell did I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, get, going through did the you, peer review. Did you get it published? Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Got, got published in a, in a law journal, law and a health journal, actually. Um, so I think that's the other part is also is resilience. And it's really, mm. really hard. I'm, you know, I've, I've had, I've been, you know, supported quite a lot of young researchers to put in grants this year. And, um, and they very kindly, you know, asked me to be an investigator, and I'm very grateful. Mm. Um, and it's heartbreaking when they email and say, I, I didn't get it. Mm. And there's a lot of despondency at the moment. And really, to be a researcher in academia right now, you have to have enormous resilience. Mm. And so it's even more important to to be able to have that self-talk that says, I am worthy and I do good work and what I do matters and here's how it matters and to be able to tell that story not only to yourself but to other people because you have to kind of go away and cry into your beer and then pick yourself up and go back and have another go and it's damn hard. Mm. Yeah. I I find that it's about a 48-hour turnaround for me from Mm. getting the initial result or feedback or review and then processing it and then you can actually see through the red mist and you're like, <laughs> yeah. actually, actually they're making sense and I can actually do better. And yeah. that, that, so that's like stages of grieving, yeah. isn't it? Mine yeah. is like an immediate call to my mum be like, Mom, I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's just human nature, right? You, yeah. you, you, it's, it's like getting a, a trauma, like a psychological trauma almost. <laughs> mm. But I mean, I, yeah, I think if, if an opportunity comes to go to a workshop to learn about how to write, you know, how to how to write grants go take it mm. um if an opportunity comes to to go and and do a course on writing in plain language there was there was a workshop this week that was run by cci take it, it you know if if there's an opportunity that comes that that talks to you about you know how to articulate the the value of your research take it because all of these things are so important how to write a, 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 a portfolio. I mean, for crying out loud, we have so many researchers in this university who don't even have a pure research repository. Mm. Like, seriously, <laughs> if you're putting in a grant application, you can bet your that eggs little eggs that probably at least one of the reviewers is going to Google you. Yeah. <laughs> and if they can't find you and your publications on your research repository that doesn't say, oh, look, you know, I got this teaching award and, you know, mm-hmm. published this work and I've been involved in this project, they're going to go, who the hell is this person? Yeah. So why would you not have a research mm-hmm. repository? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why would you not have an ORCID ID? Yeah. Why would you not be discoverable yeah. in the international Research space. That's right. When there's a service being provided for you. Sorry, I can get my bandwagon here, but it's so <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> yeah, no. it's, I, it was a requirement to have minimum information and an ORCID ID to be eligible for the Vice Chancellor's Research Awards. You'd mm-hmm. be amazed how many people submitted applications and they were not eligible. Those, mm. Yeah. Gosh. Having said they were. Yeah, I, yeah. okay. I ticked the box that said they were. <laughs> yeah, right. They probably didn't even understand what it, no. what yeah. it was. So, yeah. so to me, having a public having a, a public face, that's an important part of curating mm. your presence in the international field. Yeah, You have to market yourself. And it's awful. But if you have to, get a glass of whatever you like, tea, beer, wine, whatever, mm-hmm. juice, whatever, whether you drink or not, and just, you know, 
knuckle under and do it. Yeah. Invest in putting your best foot forward. Yeah. Because so other, other people are going to be doing the exact same thing. Absolutely. And they'll be doing it better than you. Yeah. And then when you're in competition with them, they're going to have a profile and you're not. Mm. Well, luckily, I've um, I've just sent the email to make my um, HDR uh, repository profile public today. Got that sorted. Okay. So, yeah, well, on the good. way. Well done. <laughs> but do you see what I mean, though? Oh, is yeah, that, absolutely. Is that we, think of this as, we think of it as a burden. Some people think of it as like it's it's, it's, it's administrivia. It's just the university telling me what to do and I can't be bothered. I've got more important things to do. And what I'm saying is is that it's an important part of representing yourself mm -hmm. in the best possible way in a medium that is accessible to your peers mm -hmm. in your field and more broadly. So if you go to apply for funds to a research foundation, maybe somebody who is... Um, uh, you know, on the the on the 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 board of the Peron or mm -hmm. Telethon or something, mm -hmm. who's not a scientist might want to know who you are and might want to look you up. Mm. And you're not on LinkedIn, and you're not, <laughs> and you maybe you've got a private face or a public Facebook page that has you doing strange things. I don't know, bobbing <laughs> apples or something. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but maybe you're not on, you know, yeah. you're not on LinkedIn, and mm. you haven't got a research. So it's, it's yeah. you know, yeah. Important. It's important. Yeah. It's yeah. important for the university as well. Yeah. Um, but it's more important for you, for you as an individual. There's no point doing great work if no one knows about it. Yeah. yeah. And and you have to get over. I don't want to shout about myself. Yeah. <laughs> you know that awkwardness. Yeah. No, and that's a real Absolutely. barrier for some people. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I understand that. Yeah. All I'm saying is, you said what? What's your advice? My advice yeah. is, yeah. is you are a product. And you need to, you know, present that in the best possible way. But you also need to apply for things. You need to be yeah. in it. Yeah. You need to have a go. But ask for advice. Get help. Get, I, get mentorship yeah, along I the think, way. I think having Absolutely. colleagues and mentors contribute can help your confidence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, can, you, and they can say, look, you're not really emphasizing your strengths here enough. You know, you need to add a little bit to this section. Or, and, and sometimes I've said to people, you're not ready yet, but here's mm -hmm. what you need to do to be ready. Mm-hmm. And here's, you know, here, you know, let's work through what steps you need to go through to get to that point to be ready so that you can tell the, the right story at the right time. Well, maybe this is the next step instead of this. Mm -hmm. That's what mentors, mentoring is another fantastic thing. Um, and I, I'm amazed how many people say, oh, I don't know, I don't want to be a bother. Like, if you ask me to mentor you and I say yes, that's my choice. If I've said yes, then you have the right to my time. And... Because we've, we've now made an agreement. And to me, to be asked to mentor someone, even if I have to say no, is incredibly flattering. Mm. So just ask. Yeah. <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is someone says, no, I'm terribly sorry, I'm, I'm too busy. But they might be able to suggest someone they, they think would be good for you and, and make an mm. introduction. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So men mentoring's a great resource as mm. well. That's another thing. Absolutely. We don't take enough advantage of it. I think as young scientists, uh, I see that, and that's a missed opportunity too, both formal and informal mentoring. Yep. So yeah, there definitely. are schemes, but that you can also find yeah. someone informal. Someone who's maybe got a similar interest or, mm -hmm. you know, that you relate to well or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's a great, great thing to do. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think those are some excellent pearls of wisdom, and I think people are going to be really interested and in, uh It'll be really useful for a lot of people. Um, yeah, I think that probably brings us to the end. Thank Rama. you very much. We much appreciate your time today. It's great sitting down and sharing the Have wealth you of your experience. Yeah. I feel like it was like a weird uh, game of like many different pathways <laughs> of information. Probably reflect yeah. your career though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but it's snakes and ladders. Yes, that went very fast. I thought it would be incredibly boring, but thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wonderful, this podcast and what you do. I'm so yeah. impressed. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And that was Professor Romola Bucks. Ah, oh, so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, really, really good conversation. Just so many, like, twists and turns, though. Like, I didn't realise that um, Romola had, like, so many different types of careers really yeah. Yeah, yeah she's done a lot of different things touched on a lot of different aspects 
Um, and I have to apologise if I've offended any criminologists <laughs> during that conversation. <laughs> I feel like there are a number of different <laughs> career choices here where we've got, mm, shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's obviously just my personal experience from studying criminology and then and then actually seeing out in the field what happens, you know, in practice. Mm. I actually, I, I do think... Um, it's it's a a thing that's seen in a lot of psychology branches, um, mm. and it was it was actually one that's one of the reasons why I stopped doing um, psychology in as a master's or PhD is like I did the degree, and there was just so many different schools of thought and all these different ideas, and then if you went down one branch, you just had to follow specifically what they thought was the right thing, even if it yeah. was not what I thought was the right thing. And um, it was, yeah, it's it such a broad area. Yeah. And when you go into one of the specific branches, they're like, "That this is it. This is what you have to do. And I just never yeah. believed that. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very common. I, uh, and yeah. I don't think it's any coincidence that a lot of people with an undergrad psychology background end up in public health in some way. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. You because can... it's not as restrictive and you're allowed to think more broadly about social yeah. determinants and other sort of factors that might influence health outcomes. The big picture outcomes. thing, rather yeah. than the the one yeah. branch of organisational psychology. Just making these really tight assumptions that people have yeah. these really structured lives and, you know, this this thing affects this thing and it's yeah. like that doesn't actually work in real life. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not yeah, how it no, one of my frustrations with psychology. Love it though. It yeah. Is, yeah, it's still very cool. <laughs> yeah. And I think probably one of the things I enjoyed most about that chat there with Romola was um, when I kind of got her to I prompted her to give us a bit of advice as younger researchers. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was very pointed. Uh, yeah, no, I thought it was really good. I thought it was really to good that. too. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting how many things kind of like struck a chord um particularly in terms of funding. Like I've always avoided funding and applying for grants yeah. mainly cuz one I find them incredibly boring and I just don't ever want to do that. Um but Yeah. It's it's the way that you can do research. If you want to be a research it's, only person, you have to do it. And, and even if you just want research to be a component of what you do, yeah, yeah, you don't you need funding for it. Yeah, um, and unless you work with someone who's great at getting funding, at some point you're going to have to apply for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 crazy. Yeah, so, but yeah, that advice was really good. Yeah. So anyway, hopefully that was helpful and interesting to some of the people listening out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Courtney, if people want to give us some feedback, how do they get in touch with us? Uh, you can contact us on Twitter, um, at least for the time being. We'll see again whether it uh, kind of craps itself. Um, we can contact us on Twitter at health means what. You can email us at meaningofhealth at outlook.com. Uh, you can contact us on Facebook, uh, Meaning of Health Podcast. Um, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. I think so. Um, so I think this actually might be the last guest that we have this year. I think um, f- any future guests will probably go out in the new year because we're yep. getting towards um, the end of the year now. And I yes. think the next episode that we release will probably be the Christmas episode. Yes. Yes. So um, last official interview. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but we, we we do have a couple of exciting guests lined up. Oh, yeah. Um, super excited. You have done very well for next year, Craig. There are some <laughs> fabulous guests lined up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we've, so we're, we're booked out, which is good for a, for a few episodes, um, <laughs> and hope, hopefully people will find it interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll speak with everyone soon um, prior to Christmas to give everyone a bit of Christmas cheer. Hopefully, Christmas cheer. Woo-hoo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Courtney. Thanks, Craig. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the Education Enhancement Unit and the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with editing, mixing and additional music by Craig Cumming.